Hello, uh, welcome to All Things Sedation. My name is Michael Dare, and uh, this is episode number three. It's January 15th, 2020, and the topic today is um, understanding vital signs, the good, the bad, and the ugly. This is going to be a two-part talk, just like our first two talks on entitled CO2. We're going to have two different talks on vital signs and understanding um, how to interpret vital signs, how to sort through the alarm settings on monitors, um, how to detect um, serious alarms versus uh, more minor alarms or even totally false alarms that are giving you incorrect information. Um, and uh, we're going to discuss the type of vital signs we'll see in a variety of situations like patient uh, pain, anxiety, patient having a vasovagal reaction, patient who's over-sedated, or even in the worst case, a patient who's in cardiac arrest. So um, we're going to have uh, a two-part uh, talk on, on all of this business, uh, understanding the monitor, understanding vital signs. So today I want to talk primarily about blood pressure and oxygen saturation and uh, and how do we tell uh, when we have correct readings versus erroneous readings and what information can we really glean from these two uh, monitoring uh, parameters. So let's start with uh, blood pressure. I would actually say that blood pressure is the least important vital sign uh, in regular day-to-day -day dental sedation. Um, and out of the different parameters of blood pressure, I would actually say that diastolic blood pressure is the least important of, the, of them all uh, on a minute-by-minute -minute, uh, basis during a sedation case. And let me explain myself. So one vital sign that does not change dramatically in sedation to a level which is uh, potentially harmful to the patient generally is blood pressure. I mean, many patients do come in hypertensive, but once we get them sedated, they normalize their blood pressure uh, downwards towards baselines. So yes, there is potential during sedation for something like an acute hypertensive crisis, but it is not a typical type situation. And also, um, as far as a dropping blood pressure, it is possible to have a blood pressure drop that's significant in areas of deep sedation and general anesthesia. Uh, that's possible. But for your patient in moderate sedation, uh, there isn't typically the ability for the sedatives themselves to cause a dramatic blood pressure drop. Uh, the drugs we use in anesthesia, in sedation, and in um, in general anesthesia do have an impact on blood pressure and usually it's a negative impact uh, by um, the following methods. Usually there is a potent vasodilation effect of the medication um, and that leads to a drop in things like preload and afterload and a drop in blood pressure. And on occasion, definitely, there is a need to treat uh, blood pressure issues, especially if you're doing deep sedation or GA. But in the area of moderate sedation, it's very, very rare that the drugs we're using in the quantities we're using to create moderate sedation, it's quite rare that they themselves impact blood pressure to the point where we actually have to do some type of uh, counter treatment to help support blood pressure. So in day-to-day -day sedation, especially at the area of moderate sedation, blood pressure is a parameter that 
is important, but it's actually one of the parameters that's least likely to change. Now let's look at the various things that blood pressure does give, and let's look at uh, how can we tell if a blood pressure is real or more, more likely to be a false reading where we need to retake the blood pressure. So blood pressure is made up of two readings, systolic and diastolic pressures. Systolic pressure is the top number of your blood pressure again, and it's produced by the uh, pulsatile wave of blood being ejected out of the heart, leading to a, a wave of increasing pressure as that blood travels down throughout the arterial vasculature. That top pressure of that wave of blood flow is your systolic pressure. The bottom number is the basic resting pressure in the arterial vascular beds created by volume of blood and by muscle tone um, and that there is an elasticity in the vessel itself. So diastolic pressure is the resting pressure in the arterial vasculature when the heart is not ejecting blood out. So in between two systolic contractions. So your textbook normal blood pressure of the past has definitely been 120 systolic over 80 diastolic. So in sedation, uh, what can I expect? Well, blood pressure definitely tends to often be fairly high at the beginning of a sedation case, especially for patients who have needle phobias and suffer from anxiety. And then as we sedate them, we see a normalization of their blood pressure back towards um, what their baseline vitals during their screening appointment were. There's no major reason during a sedation case to have a large shift in systolic blood pressure, especially versus, say, myself working in an emergency department where we can have very large amounts of blood loss occur quite quickly and we can see large changes in blood pressure on a minute-by-minute -minute basis. But due to the fact that dental surgery usually does not involve any large amounts of blood loss, there isn't really a big reason for there to be a, a precipitous shift in systolic blood pressure. Unless again, they're having an acute hypertensive crisis or they're having a, say, an anaphylactic shock that's occurring with a vasodilation, or we're using more powerful, potent, uh, multiple anesthetics that are causing a drop in blood pressure from usually the main component being their vasodilate, vasodilation um, acting on arterial and, and venous vascular beds. Uh, other than those a couple of situations, there's not really a reason for a dramatic shift in blood pressure. So systolic, what number is okay? Well, in critical care, we basically consider a systolic blood pressure of 90 millimeters of mercury or above adequate to perfuse all tissues and organs in a patient who's laying um, mostly supine. For diastolic pressure, well, we have the, the issue with chronic hypertension being something that we might detect while we're monitoring vital signs with a patient and then uh, sort of direct them to see their own doctor. But diastolic pressures can vary greatly during a sedation case, and that is the parameter of blood pressure that I am least concerned with on a minute-by-minute -minute basis. So I do keep an eye on systolic, I don't care a lot about diastolic other than to warn a patient that they need to follow up with their own doctor. 
And then a number I haven't even mentioned yet is something called mean arterial pressure. And mean arterial pressure is actually the number that I am the most interested in as far as giving me an idea if there's adequate perfusion of tissues and organs in the patient. So if you look at your blood pressure on a monitor, beside the systolic and diastolic reading will be a set of brackets with a single number in it, and that's mean arterial pressure. It's just a mathematical calculation being done based on systolic and diastolic pressures. I don't remember the formula offhand, but um, the machines all calculate that for you. And a normal mean arterial pressure is between 70 and 110 millimeters mercury. So in most cases, um, especially in moderate sedation, we will have a patient in that range. What pressure starts to concern me on the low side is 60 millimeters of mercury. That's sort of the line in the sand where most anesthesiologists will start to intervene to maintain adequate organ perfusion, i.e. bring out drugs like uh, phenylephrine and ephedrine. So as long as a patient who's mostly supine in a dental chair has a mean arterial pressure of 60 and above, it's thought that they are adequately perfusing their tissues and organs, but we would like it to actually be right up in the normal range of 70 to 110. So mean arterial pressure is a top-notch uh, parameter of blood pressure monitoring, and that would be sort of tied with systolic pressure. And then the least important on a minute-by-minute -minute basis in sedation would be diastolic pressure. How do I know that I can trust the blood pressure? Well, Typically, the numbers don't change dramatically from one reading to the next. So if I get a blood pressure that's really out of line with the average norm of the patient during the case, I'm quite suspicious that it's not correct. Um, and I'll repeat it. I'll check the cuff. Is it on correctly? Is it rotated correctly? Is it not too loose? Make sure it hasn't slid down the arm and also make sure that the patient did not have their arm bent up tightly. So have their arm straightened um, or only with a very light bend at the elbow. And then I'll repeat the blood pressure and uh, nearly every single time it will come back into norm and will give a reading that's more in line with all the previous readings. So that's sort of the situation as far as blood pressure goes. Um, blood pressure alarms are typically uh, occur in sedation with a higher than acceptable blood pressure that's outside the normal uh, alarm parameters. Most machines sort of have a default alarm of anything over 140 systolic will create a high blood pressure alarm or anything greater than 90 diastolic um, will create an alarm. As far as low alarms, um, it's very unlikely to have one of those again unless we have an error in the blood pressure reading itself. So on occasion, we will have high blood pressure alarms go off. That might be an indication that the patient is having increasing amounts of pain or anxiety and that we have to look at their analgesia and their sedation level. Um, so that's blood pressure in a nutshell. Unlikely to change dramatically during most sedation cases. Um, and uh, my top uh, numbers to pay attention to as far as just knowing that the patient is adequately uh, having enough delivered, delivered blood to their organs and tissues is mean arterial pressure. Um, anything greater than 60 is acceptable, and systolic pressure, anything 90 or above, being acceptable as an indicator of good end organ perfusion. All right, so that's blood pressure in a nutshell and how to tell if it's an error 
any very large blood pressure changes should indicate that you have to check the cuff, etc., and redo the blood pressure to see if it's actually a true reading. So next, let's look at oxygen saturation. So oxygen saturation is basically uh, a measurement of the amount of oxygen being carried on in red blood cells by hemoglobin, and it's expressed as a percentage. And in a healthy adult at sea level, definitely it's usually in the very high 90s, like 97 to 99% saturation. And in medicine, it's acceptable um, to have a saturation um, of 92% or above. But what we really want is what was the patient's baseline, O2 sat. That's what we want to maintain throughout the case. Um, that sat or better. Um, in medicine, in hospital systems, oxygen saturation alarms are usually set at 92%. Now, you can't have too high of an O2 sat, so we don't have a too high setting for alarms, but we'll have the O2 sat alarm set at 92, so if it goes below 92%, we will get an alarm. The other thing that you can have for alarms relating to oxygen saturation is the pulse rate alarm for tachy and bradycardic settings. We typically set our tachycardic alarm at about 120 to 130 um, uh, beats per minute or pulsations per minute as far as pulse rate coming from oxygen saturation where heart rate truly comes from ECG. And then for a bradycardia, we typically set it at 50 in most uh, settings. So if the pulse rate for, from the oxygen saturation sensor shows a pulse rate of less than 50 or over 120 to 130, we're going to get bratty or tachy alarms going off on oxygen saturation. Um, so we have information on perfusion being delivered by oxygen saturation. We have information as far as how fast the heart is beating. Um, we actually have information from oxygen saturation even on blood pressure. And I'll explain that in a moment. And then the other thing that we should talk about definitely is how oxygen saturation does not actually tell you that a patient is breathing at that moment if it's alarming or not. So oxygen saturation basically can be delayed as far as starting to show a shift in the O2 sat significantly uh, when a patient is on supplemental oxygen or even on room air. From the moment a patient, say, has an apneic episode, stops breathing, to the point where oxygen saturation starts to drop can easily be three to five plus minutes, depending on whether they're on room air or on oxygen. So the thing to remember is when you see shifts in oxygen saturation, a dropping O2 sat, you should think in your head that the breathing issue has been going on for multiple minutes. And now you're learning from O2 sat that there is an issue with the oxygen load being taken towards the cells. All right. So oxygen saturation does give us information on the respiratory system, but it's not going to give us the most accurate information as far as when did the breathing issue start to develop that is now changing and dropping the oxygen saturation. So you just have to keep that in mind. And this is why the respiratory rate and the information that we get from end tidal CO2 monitoring, which we discussed in the first two episodes, is the golden standard to know uh, to knowing what the ventilation respiratory status of a patient really is in real time.
All right. But let's go back to O2SAT and discuss a couple of things with that. So I said that oxygen saturation um, is a delayed reading as far as telling us issues with breathing. Um, also, other issues with oxygen saturation, if the patient has poor peripheral perfusion from, um, from just old age, from uh, having cold hands, etc., we can have trouble picking up oxygen saturation readings and you may need to warm up their hands or change locations or sometimes even we have to use oxygen saturation probes that can be attached to things like the ears or even the nares. Um, something more central to pick up O2SAT. But in most healthy patients who are ASA 1 through 3s, which is what we're restricted to in out-of-hospital sedation, we usually can pick up an O2SAT uh, using a finger probe out on the finger. So another reason to lose an O2SAT signal, though, is a hypotensive uh, crisis situation. So if a patient's blood pressure is quite low, say they were having anaphylactic shock and they have a blood pressure of 70 on 40, the first thing I might say to you in the room is don't worry about trying to pick up oxygen saturation. Their blood pressure is too low. We won't pick up a signal out at the fingertips. So most patients will start to lose the ability to pick up their oxygen saturation when they get into blood pressures around 85 to 90 systolic. So if I flip that around though, I know if I can hear the O2SAT beeping nicely that the patient has a blood pressure adequate most likely to perfuse their tissues and organs, that they most likely have a systolic pressure of at least 85 to 90 systolic. So we get information about the absolute minimal blood pressure that they must have to be creating the O2SAT signal. And we get information um, about the amount of oxygen that they have loaded onto their hemoglobin. And we get information as far as how fast their heart is actually beating and producing cardiac output or pulse rate. So a lot of information from O2SAT. Now, can we get false alarms from oxygen saturation? We certainly can. Um, artifact is a major uh, problem with O2SAT alarms. If a patient is shivering, if they're tapping their finger, we can definitely get problems with uh, incorrect pulse rates being detected or uh, the inability to properly detect the actual O2SAT reading itself. So when I see an oxygen saturation alarm, I'll tell you what my eyes do immediately. The number one thing I will do is my eyes will look right beside the number to the waveform. So any good oxygen saturation um, machine should have a actual graphic waveform which helps tell you the quality of the signal. All right, so you need to know whether the number you're looking at is real. And one of the very first things is my eyes will divert from the number itself to the pleth waveform, the graphical waveform being produced. Is it a nice repetitive waveform or is it a waveform that's full of electrical or interference like wildly up and down undulating lines indicating that the probe has fallen off or the probe is partially off or the patient's shivering um, or they're tapping their finger, something like that. So if I have an O2SAT alarm, step one, look at the graphical waveform is it of quality to indicate that the reading is probably correct. 
Number two, um, you cannot have a paroxysmal sudden massive change in O2 sat. That is one of the easiest ways to know that an O2 sat reading is erroneous. You can't have an oxygen saturation of 99% and then six seconds later, your alarm is going off and it says 68%. It's not physiologically possible to desaturate suddenly and paroxysmally like that. So if I'm having a low O2 sat alarm going off, there's a couple of things. One, I should know about the situation well before the alarm goes off. And what do I mean by that? Um, what I mean is all modern, well-built uh, quality monitors have what is called tone modulation for oxygen saturation. That means that the pulse rate beeping that we hear in the room during sedation will change its tone as oxygen saturation changes. And the, um, the standard is, is if the oxygen saturation drops a percentage, the tone of the beeping gets lower. So there really is no reason ever to have a paroxysmal massive O2 sat change. One, it's physiologically not possible. And two, I should hear the patient desaturating by the change and the lowering of the tone of the beeping going on that's being detected from the oxygen saturation, the beeping that the monitor is producing. So I will have a decreasing um, tone as the O2 sat drops. So even without looking at the machine, I should know that the patient has a dropping O2 sat so by the time it hits, say, 92% and below and the alarm goes off, I already am aware of the situation knowing and know what's going on. So one way to tell that you have a false O2 sat reading is if you have a very sudden low O2 sat alarm with no downward trend warning you of the situation. Again, we can't have a massive, sudden, instantaneous O2 sat change, say, from 99 to 68%. It's not physiologically possible. So look at the waveform. Does the waveform show quality? Does the number make sense? And if the number is shifting, am I hearing the tone modulation changes that I expect from the monitor? This all tells me whether O2SAT is correct. And then that last point on O2SAT, make sure you keep in your head that oxygen saturation changes lag behind respiratory issues by multiple minutes. So another good reason that the golden standard of monitoring CO2 captainography should be the uh, main way other than counting respirations and looking at the patient's chest for determining the accuracy of the patient's breathing status. All right. So that is part one uh, this week of understanding vital signs. So we hashed our way through blood pressure mean arterial pressure, systolic pressure, diastolic pressure, which of those numbers really is the important thing to be watching during sedation, what type of medical emergencies could actually lead to a drastic blood pressure change, and that that's a very limited likelihood in most sedation scenarios. Then we looked at oxygen saturation. What information do we get from it? So we get information about blood pressure, by the knowledge that we will lose oxygen saturation detection at blood pressure systolic of 85 to 90. So if we have that 
tone modulation beeping occurring, we know we have a blood pressure at least in that range. Of course, we get information on pulse rates and we get information on the amount of oxygen being carried by the hemoglobin. We troubleshoot it also how to tell whether we're getting a quality signal as far as oxygen saturation. One last thing I want to mention before I wrap up this talk, though, is that we can actually get information about the ECG rhythm from pulse rate. So one thing I talk about a lot in our ECG interpretation training is that the sinus node is not a race car. It's not a Ferrari. It cannot have paroxysmal sudden rate changes. What I'm getting is this. I cannot have a heart rate or pulse rate of 70 beats a minute and then three seconds later it's 180 and that's still the sinus node. The sinus node cannot do massive paroxysmal heart rate changes. If I hear the pulse rate of the O2 sat paroxysmally suddenly change, usually it's from a normal heart rate to a very tachycardic heart rate, I then know that the patient is having a abnormal heart arrhythmia. And the two most common ones that would cause a regular tachycardic pickup of pulse rate that's very paroxysmal in origin is a very dangerous rhythm called ventricular tachycardia and a much less dangerous rhythm called a supraventricular tachycardia. So both of these rhythms will have a very sudden onset as a different area of the heart takes over the pacing of the heart from the sinus node. So characteristic hallmarks of these two arrhythmias is that we have a detected sudden change in the patient's heart rate. They often feel it if they're in a non-healthcare setting and they're not being monitored. They can tell you exactly when their heart started racing. Or in our case, we catch it on a monitoring system through the ECG, through heart rate from the ECG, and also through things like oxygen saturation. So we'll talk about ECG next week, but I can determine from a rapid paroxysmal heart rate change that we likely have a ECG arrhythmia being generated like a supraventricular tachy or ventricular tachycardia. Ventricular tachycardia can actually cause a patient to be in full cardiac arrest needing prompt CPR and a defibrillator and a defibrillation. SVTs rarely cause gross patient instability. Supraventricular tachycardias are a narrow QRS rhythm that is quite tolerated because it often occurs in younger patients versus the elderly. So most patients in an SVT are actually quite stable. They even can be taught how to manage their arrhythmia at home, whereas people in VTAC are in a very dangerous rhythm. It's electrically unstable and likely to degenerate to ventricular fibrillation at any moment. And it also can produce such poor cardiac output that the patient is actually um, in full cardiac arrest with no detectable pulses or signs of life. So those two rhythms we'll discuss more as we talk about ECG. The other rhythm that I can detect with near certainty from oxygen saturation and the pulse rate information is a rhythm called atrial fibrillation. There's only one truly, totally, chaotically irregular rhythm in the world that produces a pulse that is grossly irregular with no pattern to it whatsoever, and that is atrial fibrillation. So oxygen saturation can tell me that I highly suspect that a patient is in atrial fibrillation if the beeping sound becomes completely chaotic and irregular, yet I've checked that the probe is on correctly, 
that the signal strength is good and say I palpate a pulse and it matches that totally chaotic irregular pulse rate that the O2 sat is detecting, I can hedge my bets very seriously that we have the rhythm atrial fibrillation. So yes, I love my Apple Watch, but um, kudos to the ECG interpretation um, that I can do from my Apple Watch. But really, it's not rocket science that an Apple Watch will tell a user that they possibly have atrial fibrillation and see, should see their doctor. I could take anyone's pulse, and if they're in atrial fibrillation, I'll be able to detect it from just taking their radial pulse most likely, and I can probably bet $100 and I would not lose. So um, I love my Apple Watch, but detecting atrial fibrillation is really not rocket science for an Apple Watch to do. All right, so that's the end of uh, part one of understanding vital signs, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So next week, I'm going to uh, do part two, which is adding uh, the information we gain from ECG, how to detect ECG artifact, uh, what type of alarm settings do we have for ECG, um, and I'll even discuss um, how you can tell an ECG rhythm is dangerous even if you can't name it. So there's some really basic rules for determining that an ECG rhythm is likely to impact a patient's cardiac output and perhaps be even life-threatening to them. Um, we'll also look at the fact that ECG lead setup can be used to actually determine a respiratory rate on a patient. And um, I'll discuss the negative aspects of that type of uh, respiratory rate counting being done through the ECG lead system. Also next week, we'll look at the parameters again of end tidal CO2 monitoring and respiratory rate from that and the partial pressure of CO2 gas. I'll only lightly touch on that because we did deal with it a lot in our first two podcasts. Also next week, we'll look at what will uh, operatory monitor tell us if a patient has a variety of situations going on like pain, anxiety, a vasovagal reaction, being over sedated, having a respiratory arrest, or even in a situation where a patient has a full cardiac arrest. All right, so that's what's coming up next week. Thank you for listening. Um, please support our podcast. Please spread the word. Uh, we're going to be having a video podcasts. Uh, a YouTube channel has been created that we will start to populate in the next week or two with some talks. I know I've had some requests that uh, straight podcasts are a little difficult without being able to draw and, um, and demonstrate a couple of uh, things uh, in front of a video camera. And the other thing is, is we will be um, advertising this week uh, for our All Things Sedation um, Facebook group, uh, where people wanting to discuss uh, sedation issues, people who have questions or comments about, uh, about their own experiences in sedation or about our podcasts and video um, YouTube podcasts, um, can, can place comments. So this is going to be an open group setting. Um, and um, the, the group has been created, but we just haven't advertised it yet. So uh, please check that out also. And again, our webpage is www.dentaled.com. Dental Ed, E-D like education. Dental Ed is one word, dot com. And uh, go check out our site. Uh, we sell sedation equipment. We sell sedation supplies. We sell monitors. 
but our mainstay business is in the area of sedation training and all of the support courses that go with sedation training. So it's been a great day to chat with you. It's cold and miserable here outside, so it was great to be inside, warm in the office, giving our third podcast. So thank you very much. Bye.